This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Infertility. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Infertility has long been stigmatized, particularly for women. Women are often blamed for inability to conceive and suffer the consequences. Women struggling with infertility are at higher risk for violence, divorce, depression, and anxiety. Infertility is also a growing global problem, with the World Health Organization just releasing a new report earlier this year citing that one in six struggles with fertility. In the United States, the CDC reports that 19% of nulliparous heterosexual women aged 15 to 49 have infertility. But that's not all. Significant disparities exist in both rates of infertility, with black women having higher rates than Caucasian, and significant disparities in access to fertility services. The mean age of mothers at birth has risen over the past few decades. In 1970, the mean age at birth was 24.6, and now in 2021, it has risen to 29.4. This is good news in the sense that teen pregnancy rates have decreased. Women instead are having more kids later in life, including in their 40s. Alarmingly though, European studies have shown that fertility can start declining as early as age 27. Fortunately, the science of assisted reproduction has also been advancing. We've come a long way from ancient times when the treatment for infertility was magic elixirs. For our final webcast of the 2022-2023 season, I am excited to have Dr. Brooke Rossi here to discuss infertility. Brooke is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility expert and is an assistant professor at Ohio State University. 
Brooke will be discussing the different types of infertility and how to work them up along with an overview of treatment. Brooke, welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Now, Brooke, I saw that one of your research interests is fertility and lifestyle. What are some lifestyle factors that can affect fertility? There have been some lifestyle factors that have been known about for years. So for example, tobacco use mm-hmm. hurts fertility for both men and women and is also detrimental in pregnancy. Mm. Alcohol use and high amounts can affect fertility. Sometimes occupational exposure, mm. pesticides, paints, different heat can affect fertility. And then there's you know growing literature and understanding about other things like marijuana use, um, and then I think even more interesting topics such as like sleep, stress, mm-hmm. those are all things that may affect fertility. Wow, a lot of things can affect yeah. it. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, I'm excited to hear more. If you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and instructions to get your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. You can watch any of the webcasts you've missed or review any you wanna revisit. You can also listen to our programs by podcast by searching for MedNet21 CME on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Brooke? Thank you. So we have goals for today's talk. First, we're going to classify different types of female and male infertility. We're going to choose appropriate diagnostic tests based on the patient's history. We will recognize limitations of each test and when further testing may be necessary. And then we'll have a conversation about appropriate treatment based on the findings from our history and our testing. But first, of course, let's define infertility. So for our patients who are less than 35, infertility can be diagnosed when they have tried an attempted pregnancy for more than 12 months. Once women get to be 35 years old though, we will begin the evaluation when they've been trying for six months. As we'll go through, it's very important to understand for patients and that the inability to conceive on a, by a patient with their partner is also defined as infertility. And then there are two types of infertility. There's primary infertility, which means that the patient has never conceived. And then there's secondary infertility, which means that the patient has conceived in the past. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've had a baby. So a patient who has had a miscarriage, who is having trouble getting pregnant a second time, technically has secondary infertility. I wanted to show the most recent guidelines from our national organization, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And the important thing that I wanted to show is that it's saying that infertility is a disease when a patient cannot conceive with their partner um, or on their own. And that's actually important um, for our patients who may be single or for our same-sex couples, because this the definition of of them getting in, or the diagnosis of them getting infertility sometimes allows them to use infertility benefits through their insurance. So it's very important that we understand that patients who cannot conceive have infertility, even if they haven't been given a medical diagnosis for that. So you may be seeing a patient with infertility and wondering when would, should we start doing testing on them? So if a patient is less than 35, we try to have them try on their own for at least 12 months. And again, when they're between 35 to 39, it may be reasonable to start the testing once they've tried for six months. But what about for our patients who are more than 40? 
there are all kinds of things that affect women in their 40s, which we may want to know about sooner than later. So first of all, there's age-related fertility decline, which means that a woman at 40 is already going to have a harder time than a woman at 30. There's other things that can come up more frequently as women get older, fibroids and that sort of thing. So if you you know, you want to know about those things. If you need to fix them, you have to have time to fix them. And then there can be a higher risk of pregnancy loss because of age-related issues as well. Now, this whole 12-month, six-month thing is really only applies to patients who are having regular periods once a month and can, can try, like, reasonably. If we have patients who are not having regular periods, so they're having rare periods, which is oligomenorrhea, if they're not having periods at all, that patient can't try on her own. So that's a reason that you would see that patient right away. And then if, you, if a patient has a known condition, like they're, if their ovarian reserve is affected by the fact that they've had chemotherapy, and this could be either in the man or the woman, or if a woman has a known history of endometriosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, or if a male has issues like, you know, sometimes I'll see a man who will say, oh, somebody told me at one point that I was going to have trouble having kids. Like, those are red flags. Those patients need to be seen right away. They, don't, they should not be trying on their own, wasting their time, getting frustrated. So the picture that I'm showing you here is a very common picture that I draw pretty much with every new patient that I see. It's very simple, but I think it gets the point across. So it's a, a stick drawing of a woman with her ovaries and her uterus. And what this is showing is just... What do you need to get pregnant? You need to, have, you need to have your brain functioning with your ovary, sending hormone messages down. You need to have eggs that are at least good quality. You need to have some sperm that are good quality and quantity. You need to have at least one open fallopian tube that works, and you need to have a normal uterus. As long as we have most of these things, we can usually help patients. But the picture I'm showing you now is really what's happening, right? So this is... Um, what we call the HPO axis. So it's the hypothalamus pituitary ovary axis. And I'm sure that we have all learned this at some point in medical school, but you might not think about it every day. But I think about this every day and I try to have patients get familiar with this also because the problems with this axis can either lead to their infertility and often we're trying to manipulate this axis for their treatment. So just roughly, as a reminder, what happens is the hypothalamus sends GnRH down to the pituitary, and then the pituitary is responsible for either releasing FSH or LH in a pulsatile way, which communicates with the ovary, and then that ovary starts to make a follicle or an egg. That follicle grows and grows and grows, and so there's kind of negative feedback that's making it so only one egg is growing. But once that follicle or egg gets big enough, you have positive feedback, and that tells the pituitary to release an LH surge. That causes ovulation, and that egg gets released. Now, what's supposed to happen is the egg is then supposed to get picked up by the fallopian tube, meet sperm in the fallopian tube, get fertilized, and then implant on the wall of the uterus. And then after ovulation, the LH then communicates with the ovary. Progesterone is made. That progesterone, if someone conceives, continues and elevates. If someone doesn't conceive, the progesterone goes down, and then with the progesterone fall, a period will start, and then the whole cycle starts up again. So just a little reminder on that axis there. There are many causes for infertility. So some of the most common causes are either male factor infertility, meaning an issue with the concentration or the motility of the sperm, Ovulatory infertility is also very common, meaning that women aren't ovulating, so there's no egg there when it needs to be. 
we can see tubal factor, endometriosis are common, and then unexplained infertility, which we'll talk more about in the future of this talk. Um, unexplained infertility is also one of the more common forms of infertility. And unfortunately, people often have more than one thing going on. So I'll see a patient who looks like she just has some simple anovulation. I get her ovulating, and then lo and behold, we find out that her partner has a low sperm count. So unfortunately, there can be several things going on at one time. So in terms of the evaluation, the first thing we're gonna talk about is the history that we take on the patients to help us understand what's going on. And um, I'm sure you often feel like a detective at times seeing your patients as well. And I have a lot of time, fortunately, to talk to patients and I'm always trying to dissect their history to understand if there's any clues to why they may be having trouble. So we're asking them about how long they've had infertility. Have they had infertility with multiple partners? What kind of testing have they done? What kind of treatment? Have they ever been pregnant before? What's their menstrual history? Are they having regular periods? Are they missing periods? Are they having heavy bleeding? Have they used contraception? I mean, there are some forms of contraception um, that kind of last a long time, even after we think they should stop, like Depo-Provera. There are other forms of contraception that should stop right away, like birth control pills and IUDs, so you can't just tell someone, oh, you stopped your pills six months ago, that might be an issue, because people should really conceive right away after stopping most contraception. Sometimes you have to talk about coital frequency and sexual dysfunction and understanding if there's anything, you know, do they have an understanding of when they're fertile and when they should be having sex. We want to get a general gynecologic history, asking about prior infections. And then the medications are not so important in that they, they, they cause infertility, but you know, these are all women who want to get pregnant and are going to be pregnant mostly. And so we want to make sure they're not taking any medications that they shouldn't be taking during pregnancy. And as you know, there are many medications you don't have information on in pregnancy, but there are a few, you know, a few that we would want someone to stop before they get pregnant. Um, history of chemotherapy or radiation may, depending on where it is in their body, may affect their fertility. So I have some patients recently who have gotten uh, cranial radiation, which may affect their, their pituitary and affect their fertility. Obviously, if they've had pelvic radiation or, or chemotherapy, that may affect their ovarian function. Uh, surgery, it's funny, I'm always asking people about if they've had their appendix out. Well, if somebody's had, you know, a ruptured appendix, their appendix sits right, right by their right fallopian tube. And if they've had a pelvic infection from something like a ruptured appendix, that may be affecting their fertility and causing pelvic adhesions. Uh, we want to know their social history. Are they smoking? Are they drinking? Are they using marijuana? What are they exposed to at work? Could that have an issue? And then we want to know, um, you know, kind of preconception counseling, like, do they have any family history of birth defects? Are they carriers of fragile X syndrome? And, um, you know, intercourse, like, there's a lot of different lubricants out there. Most of them hurt the sperm. So we want to make sure that they're only, if they're using lubricants, they're only using ones that are safe. And then we want to talk about exercise, diet. I mean, obviously, a lot of our patients are struggling with their weight. And so we always want to talk about if there's anything that we can modify with their diet as well. And then infertility is very stressful. So we always want to try to assess with them, how are they doing together? How are they feeling about this? Are they supported? Okay, so once we've taken our history, we're then gonna go on to our testing. And the, the main areas, go back to our little stick figure woman that we thought about, right? So our main areas are, we're gonna look for ovulation, we're gonna to try to assess their ovarian reserve, we're gonna to try to understand if they have any open fallopian tubes and look at their uterus. 
And then again, the preconception counseling, making sure they're getting their uh, carrier screening done, making sure that their immunizations are up to date. So that's all part of it too. Now this list that I have here is a list of tests that again, our, our national organization has recommended that people don't just do right out of the gate. So the tests that are listed here, including laparoscopy, prolactin, progesterone, estradiol, FSH, luteinizing hormone, these are not tests that need to be done. They're not particularly helpful um, when I'm seeing someone for the first time. Until I get a sense of like what's happening with their cycle, sometimes we do order these, but if a woman's just having periods regularly, there probably isn't a need to do all of this testing right out of the gate. And, you know, there are some patients who don't have infertility testing coverage and they surely don't want to be paying for things or um, having procedures done that they don't need. So let's talk about diagnosing ovulation. So I was always taught that the poor man's test for diagnosing ovulation is to just ask a woman if she's having regular periods. Because if a woman's having periods once a month, especially if it's um, with like, you know, feeling cramping around the time of her period or breast tenderness, those are usually very good signs that she's ovulating. And people usually ovulate about 14 days before they have their period. Now also, we will usually do some sort of testing. So if you wanted a more objective test to look at ovulation, um, you, we usually try to check a progesterone level a week after somebody has ovulated. We say it's a day 21 progesterone. Um, that's just because most people ovulate around day 14. But if you had a patient that was ovulating late, you would want to check it about seven days after they ovulate. And then if it's greater than three, that is diagnostic of ovulation. I do sometimes, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, a debate in our field about, you know, is the progesterone good or bad? What if it's eight? Is that better than four? Is that not as good as 15? You know, progesterone, because it's controlled by the pituitary through LH, kind of goes up and down throughout the day. So there isn't really a good or bad level. If it's above three, the patient's ovulated, they're probably going to have a period, and that's always good news. The WHO has three different classes of anovulation. So let's just briefly understand these. So class one would be your hypogonadotropic hypogonadism patients. So these are your patients who have um, hypothalamic amenorrhea. So that the whole axis is not working from the hypothalamus down. So the ovaries aren't making any estrogen and nothing's happening because there's no GnRH coming from the hypothalamus. So those patients have low FSH and low estradiol. And people who have hyperprolactinemia fall into this category because an elevated prolactin will actually um, inhibit the hypothalamus from functioning. Now, very common condition, polycystic ovary syndrome. These people are technically normal gonadotropic normal estrogenic patients because they have enough estrogen being made through their adipose that their estrogen levels are normal and their FSH levels are normal as well. So they're not ovulating, not because there's a problem with the access, but it has to do with like their, their insulin and their testosterone being abnormal, sort of inhibiting the, the pituitary from functioning. And then we have our class three patients, which are hypogonadotropic hypoestrogenic patients. So these are our patients who have primary ovarian insufficiency. These are like menopausal patients. So the hypothalamus and the pituitary work just fine, but there's nothing happening because the ovary doesn't have any more eggs to give. Let's talk a little bit about ovarian reserve. So ovarian reserve is this idea about how many eggs are left in the ovaries. And so when we think about ovarian reserve, there's kind of like the quality of the eggs, and then there's the quantity of the eggs. And these 
And the quality of the eggs is really has more to do with somebody's age and the potential that that egg is going to give us a genetically normal pregnancy. So egg quality in that sense is better when you're younger compared to when you're older. There's also this idea about egg quality. So like, for example, like a smoker is going to have worse egg quality than a non-smoker, let's just say. But the quantity of the eggs, how many eggs somebody has left, is different. And that's what we're looking at with these, with these tests. So not everybody needs ovarian reserve testing done. It's not particularly helpful in women who are less than 35. So we try to, and it can kind of muddy the waters a little bit when you do the testing. So we want to try to test in women who are over 35 or women who are at risk for having low ovarian reserve. So women who have a family history of premature ovarian failure, women who have had ovarian surgery, chemotherapy or radiation. Sometimes unexplained infertility you may do that. And then um, ovarian reserve testing is actually very helpful when we're planning patients doing in vitro fertilization. So the different tests are a day three FSH and estradiol. And it's actually really important if you're going to try to do this and you're going to check an FSH, it really has to be done on day two, three, or four. And it's very helpful to be done with an estradiol as well. A random FSH doesn't tell us very much. You can also do an antral follicle count, which is a um, ultrasound done in the very early phase of the um, menstrual cycle to look at how many antral follicles there are in the ovaries. You can also do a Clomid challenge test. That's what the CCCT is. It's an old fashioned thing that sometimes insurance companies still request. Um, in general, an FSH of less than 10 and an estradiol less than 80 um, in day two, three, or four is considered normal. And then a, a newer test is an anti-malarian hormone level. And that can be done any day of the cycle, which is why we do it more, uh, more commonly now. And that tells us again about ovarian reserve. It's really, really important with this testing. I spent a lot of time talking to patients about this and sometimes trying to reassure them of some prior testing that they've had. Ovarian reserve testing is very helpful in patients who have infertility who are trying to do treatment. It should not really be used. If you have a patient that comes to you and says, I'm worried about my fertility, but I've never tried to get pregnant. I would like to do testing. It's hard to interpret these tests. You know, obviously, as you all know, screening tests need to be done in the right population, and when they're not done in the right population, they, it gets harder to interpret. This is a great example of that. So when I have a 29-year-old who's never tried to get pregnant, but her friend did an AMH level and she wants to know what it means, it's very hard to interpret that test. So, and also, I want to always reassure patients. I have some patients that come in who've had an AMH level done and it's low. That doesn't mean they may have trouble getting pregnant. It may not even talk tell us much about why they're not getting pregnant, it really only helps us with their treatment planning. So it, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't conceive, and we just want to make sure we're really doing this testing in an appropriate way. So remember we talked about you need the brain to work, the ovaries to work, now we're on the fallopian tube. So we want to make sure the fallopian tubes are open. It's hard to know if the fallopian tubes are functional. So for example, there can be conditions that happen to the tube within the tube that we can't see, but we at least can make sure that they're open. So a hysterosalpingogram or an HSG is probably the most common way to look at the fallopian tubes. It's a fluoroscopic test where we push dye into the uterus and watch it go out the tubes, and it tells us if the tubes are open or not. It doesn't necessarily tell us that the egg is going into the tubes at the right time, but it can at least tell us if the tubes are open. And there's even some data that um, certain types of contrast dye kind of flush out the tubes and may actually have a higher chance of getting pregnant after that test is done. 
Another way that tubal um, pain-C can be assessed is to do a hysterosalpingo contrast sonography, which is where a patient has a transvaginal ultrasound done, and then water is put into the uterus and air, and you can kind of like see the bubbles on either side of the pelvis, and it can tell us if the tubes are open as well. Um, and then sometimes if we don't necessarily need to look at the fallopian tubes but want to make sure the uterus is okay, we may do saline infusion, hysterography, or flexible hysteroscopy to see if the uterus is okay. So I just wanted to show you some pictures of an HSG. This is a great looking HSG. This woman has paint fallopian tubes. If you look really carefully, you can see the little tiny lines of the tubes, and then you see the dye in the pelvis that's kind of pooling in the pelvis. This is a uterus looks normal as well. This is a more abnormal HSG. You can see on the patient's right side, um, the dye may be coming out a little bit, but it's not really pooling. And then on the left, the patient's left, she probably has a form of a hydrocelpinx, which is when the tube is blocked. So it does take, we need sperm to make a pregnancy as well. So this, now we're going to talk about the male side of things. So this is the um, axis for men. Looks kind of like the axis for women. All the same players, just doing a little bit of a different thing. So um, we can see in men, you have the hypothalamus, which makes a GnRH. And then the pituitary is also making FSH and LH. The FSH helps the Sertoli cells actually make sperm. And then the LH helps the Leydig cells make testosterone. And the testosterone is very important for sperm production. And if there's one, it, one of the most important things I want to make sure that everybody knows from this talk is that giving a man testosterone really hurts his fertility. And every once in a while, I will still see a man who has said, well, I went to my doctor and I told him I wanted to get pregnant, so he said I should take testosterone. So when a man takes exogenous testosterone, it creates a negative feedback. And so the whole production of spermatogenesis stops. And so we you know, if a guy ever wants to have a child, he should really not take any testosterone. Now, when men need therapy, what they do is they actually take other medications that make their gonadotropins, their FSH and LH, go up so that their body's own testosterone goes up and then they can make, have sperm production. But it's really, really important that any man who wants to retain fertility should never be taking testosterone. So when we talk with the men, we ask them a lot of the same questions. You know, how long have they been trying? Have they ever had a child in any other relationship? We want to know about their medical surgical history. Have they had any testicular injury like testicular torsion? Have they had any chemotherapy, radiation, surgery to their genital region? Um, do they have any medicines or, or surgical history? Do they have diabetes? You know, how is, um, are they having any erectile dysfunction from that? Um, <laughs> Men, I'm laughing because men often ask them if they have any health problems, and they always say, not that I know of, because sometimes these young men don't go to the doctor very often, so we're trying to do the best that we can with the information they have. Um, but we want to get their social history, how much are they smoking, drinking, chewing tobacco, all of that stuff. There's a lot of men who do a lot of um, work with jobs that could, they could have environmental exposures. We want to try to get their um, family history, understand if they're having any issues with intercourse, lubricants, how are they exercising, and if they have any sexual dysfunction. Sexual dysfunction can be a real issue for couples. You know, if we have, 
you know, a man that has a little bit of sexual dysfunction or erectile dysfunction, and then all of a sudden we're asking patients, okay, now go have sex every other day for 10 days of the cycle. Like that can sometimes add insult to injury. So you really have to be gentle with these couples and, and, and sometimes men don't want to talk about it either. So you have to be very careful with these couples and make sure that we're getting good histories from them. The male testing is not as extensive as for the women. In fact, I wish we had more testing for the men because there's probably more about the sperm that we don't quite understand. But the basis, as we'll talk about, is a semen analysis. And then um, sometimes men will see urologists or fertility urologists, and they may have um, a physical exam where they're assessed for secondary sexual characteristics. They'll have a genital exam. They may even have a scrotal ultrasound. And then you know, men don't necessarily, like all men with infertility don't need to have hormonal testing done. Usually hormonal testing, which again on men would be a testosterone, an FSH, an LH, a TSH and prolactin, sometimes an estradiol as well. We usually only will do that hormonal testing if they consistently have a low sperm count. So a semen analysis is the cornerstone of male infertility testing. It, um, the sample can be collected at, in the office or at home. We usually want there to be only two to three days of abstinence before collecting the sperm sample. Um, we definitely don't want men to go for a week because then we don't get a good assessment of, of what their sperm quality is when we need them to be trying to get pregnant. Um, and one bad semen analysis does not usually make a diagnosis because there can be such variability with results on semen analyses. We usually want there to be, a, so if, if the sperm count is abnormal, we may check it a month later before we diagnose a, a man with um, a sperm issue. And a semen analysis is a little bit of a tricky test also. If, if the semen analysis is abnormal, that's probably the reason why the couple's not getting pregnant. But I have many patients, I got all kinds of men running around our office with totally normal sperm counts and their partners aren't getting pregnant. So it's good and it's helpful if it's abnormal. If it's normal, it doesn't necessarily mean that the sperm aren't involved in the infertility issue. It just means that we don't have a good test for understanding what the issue with the sperm could be. The WHO sets the standards for semen analyses, and this is the most recent um, standard that the WHO came out with. So normal semen volume is 1.5 milliliters. That's not that much. Men are always surprised when they give us a semen analysis. They're always worried about the volume. It's very a small amount. A normal um, sperm concentration, that's the, so it's the million per milliliter, is about 15 to 16. Normal motility should be at least um, 42%, and then we're always looking at something called progressive motility, which is how many of the sperm are actually moving forward, right? The sperm need to swim to the egg and swim forward to the egg. So that's the most important part with the motility. And then normal forms uh, describes morphology, which is what percentage of the sperm are normally shaped. Are their heads normal? Are their tails normal? And it only needs to be 4%. Um, and so this is the criteria that we look at for a semen analysis. Now, if a, if a semen analysis is abnormal, sometimes, especially if the semen analysis is, is something called azospermia, where there's no sperm, we'll, we'll sometimes do, in addition to the hormonal testing, we'll do chromosome testing. So there are several different genetic issues that may affect men. So one is um, uh, called Kleinfelter syndrome, and then also a... Um, Reciprocal translocation may also affect fertility. So those would be reasons why we may do a karyotype. 
There's also a condition called a Y chromosome microdeletion, which may lead to azospermia or a very low sperm count. And then, you know, of course, we want to make sure that our men, if they have azospermia, we do need to think about whether they could have congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens and, and associated with cystic fibrosis. So I often, I often, unless I have a really strong reason to suspect one of these in men, I often don't check these. These can be expensive tests, so I often will, you know, do the hormone testing and then I'll have the urologist do these if they, if they really suspect after their physical exam that they need to have it done. So this is um, kind of similar to the chart we looked at for women. So if a man has normal sperm production, all of his hormones should be normal. If he has, um, kind of again, if the access is kind of stopped, so this could be like if a man has, um, I don't know, like a, a intracranial mass or if he just has kind of like a hypogonadotropic picture, his testosterone, all of his hormones will be low. For our men, some of them may have testicular failure. So our men who have had like chemotherapy or men who have Klinefelter's look like they have very high FSH and LH levels, but low testosterone. And then every once in a while, we, I just have a man in the last six months who had very low sperm count, very low testosterone, his prolactin was very, very high. And so he's seen an endocrinologist, we're working on getting his prolactin down, and I'm sure when it goes down, his testosterone will go up and they'll be fine. But that can also be an issue for men as well. So in summary, for our couples, we will do a complete history on both the, on the man and the woman, a physical usually on the woman, sometimes the urologist will do it on the men. We talk about looking for ovarian reserve, monitoring for ovulation, looking at their fallopian tubes and their uterus, and then doing a semen analysis. And that's kind of the basics of the infertility evaluation. So unfortunately, I feel like we've had a lot of these same tests for infertility for decades. And as we talked about earlier, you know, at least 20% of our patients have unexplained infertility, which is not a very satisfying diagnosis to get for our patients. They're basically told, you're not getting pregnant and we don't know why. And it's not that there isn't anything wrong, it's just that whatever is going on, I can't see. So maybe a woman's ovulating, but the egg's not getting into the tube even though the tube looks open. Or maybe the sperm and the egg are getting near each other, but there's a fertilization issue I can't see and would never be able to see. Or maybe fertilization is happening, but implantation isn't happening. So there's a lot of steps of the process that we don't have tests for. So that some of the things that we can't see with our testing would be endometriosis. So sometimes patients need a laparoscopy to look for that. Pelvic adhesions. So even if somebody doesn't have you know, a history, I've had a couple people over the years who don't really have a history of having an infection, but go in and look like they've had pelvic inflammatory disease at some point, or have had other issues in their pelvis like prior infections that may cause adhesions. Um, Issues with sperm function or sperm quality that we can't pick up on a semen analysis, those are things we can sometimes see when we do in vitro fertilization. Implantation issues are very hard to diagnose or to fix. And then sometimes egg quality issues we can see with um, IVF as well. So we're gonna move our talk into talking about infertility management and treatment. And so we're gonna talk about correction of lifestyle practice or, or lifestyle or coital practice ovulation induction. Um, we'll mention intrauterine insemination, which is when the sperm is put directly into the uterus. 
Hysteroscopy and laparoscopy are tools that we also utilize, surgical procedures that we utilize to help patients conceive. And we'll talk a little bit about in vitro fertilization. We're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about third-party reproduction. I just wanna mention what that is because that is a tool that some of our patients choose to use. Third-party reproduction means that a couple is using another party. So this is either donor sperm, donor eggs, or using a gestational carrier. A gestational carrier is when another woman may carry that pregnancy. These are treatments that we utilize sometimes for men who have poor quality sperm, um, sometimes for same-sex couples who don't have a male partner and need sperm. Um, egg donation can be used for women who have um, age-related fertility decline, sometimes if they carry a genetic disease. And so these are different treatments that we use every day. Um, not, a, not a majority of our patients use them, but many patients need to utilize these to have the families that they would like to have. Okay, so lifestyle modification, what can patients do? Well, for patients who truly have functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, meaning like they come and they say, I'm doing this or that, and I don't have a period because of it, those patients may need to modify their stress and modify their activity. I have a lot of patients that come and ask about if stress is making them not get pregnant. And I, you know, I, I, I think that stress is not particularly helpful. I try to have patients reduce what they're doing if possible, but I really want to try to not make patients feel bad about the fact that they're too stressed out and that's why they're not getting pregnant because it's probably not under their control. Um, PCOS is really common. It's a very common condition, one of the most common reasons why people don't ovulate and then have issues with fertility. And one of the first guidelines on infertility management of PCOS patients says that we should try to help patients lose weight. And that's true. Losing weight may help them ovulate. It may help them have a safer pregnancy. But I have to tell you that, so we definitely want to have our PCOS patients do that. But it, we can get, it's a little tricky when patients show up and they're 39 years old and we're, you know, I can't wait for them. Yeah, I can't wait three years for them to try to lose all the weight they need to lose. So sometimes we're doing a few things at once, trying to help them lose weight while helping them get pregnant at the same time. For hyperprolactinemia, you just need to make sure that there isn't any other issue that's causing their prolactin to go up. Like, are they taking a medication that could be making their prolactin go up? Doesn't necessarily mean they need to stop that medication, especially if it's a really important mental health medication, but we just need to have a, a conversation about how we're going to manage that. And then environmental issues. So what are they doing at work? Is there any, are they making sure they're using all the protective gear they need? Are they smoking? And tobacco, I'm talking about like trying to get men off of chewing tobacco, cigarette smoke, alcohol, diet. A lot of patients have questions about marijuana use right now, and we're still trying to get all the information on that as well. So let's talk about oral agents. So these are some of the most common infertility treatments that we utilize. And I, I really want to make sure that patients understand that these are simple medications. They've been around forever, and many patients get pregnant on this kind of medication. Oral agents, as you see here, clomiphene citrate and letrozole, they are both, I kind of always say that they're similar medications. They're like cousins. They do the same thing, but in a different way. And both of them lead to an increase in FSH and follicular development. Um, both of them, either one way or another, get like more gonadotropins to be released from the pituitary. Um, Compared to other treatments, they may lower the risk of multiple gestation, and they're low cost and they're easy to use. They're only ten day or only five days of medication. Clomiphene citrate is in, the, in a classification of medication called a CIRM, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So it kind of works at the hypothalamus to kind of disrupt the feedback loop. 
Now, letrozole is an aromatase inhibitor. Letrozole is off-label use for infertility treatment, but it is definitely the standard of care and recommended that it be used, especially for patients with polycystic ovary syndrome. And then dopamine agonists are medications that you would use for hyperprolactinemia. So for clomiphene citrate and letrozole, they're low cost, just a five-day course. The cumulative pregnancy rate over several months of use is about 30 to 40 percent. There's about a 7 to 9 percent risk of twins and a less than 1 percent risk of triplets. Clomid is not worse than letrozole in terms of twins. They both have the same risk of twins. Um, side effects include things like hot flashes, moodiness, vaginal dryness. Every once in a while I have a patient who I need to switch because I can't tolerate the symptoms. If a patient has anovulation, sometimes we'll just use this medicine and just have them do timed intercourse and just keep it very simple. I mean, if a patient can't get pregnant because literally the egg and the sperm have never been in the same place before, all she may need to do is to take the medication and to have timed intercourse. But a lot of our patients will also pair this with intrauterine insemination to try to increase their chances. And then as we talked about already, letrozole is recommended for PCOS. Um, kind of like the next level up for treatment is some, using gonadotropins directly. So, and this is not as widely used anymore because of the reasons we'll talk about here in a second, but I just wanted to make sure that you understand this is sort of another option as well. So giving a patient direct, giving patient directly gonadotropins, basically if I can't get their FSH to get up high enough to recruit follicles by using oral medications, this is the next thing I do because I can definitely provide them or give them enough FSH to make them recruit follicles. So this is recombinant um, FSH or follicle stimulating hormone. And then sometimes patients also, especially patients who have hypogonadotropic hypogonadism or who have no pituitary function, they often need to take something called HMG, which is a combination of FSH and LH together. So patients who may use gonadotropins may be PCOS patients who are resistant, meaning they don't ovulate with other medications patients who have hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, and sometimes patients with unexplained infertility who are just trying to get them to make more um, follicles at once to increase their chances. So these have a higher chance of getting pregnant. So this pregnancy rate per cycle is about 15 to 25%. However, it's this risk, <laughs> this risk, these risk points here that make us concerned about doing this. So of all the treatments we do, even including IVF. This gives us the highest risk of twins and triplets. And so the risk of triplets may be at least 5%. Um, these patients are also at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation. And it can be quite, this treatment can be costly. I mean, it can, they can be several thousand dollars per month of buying medication. And there's no increased risk of cancer, birth defects, or miscarriage with any of the treatments we've discussed so far. Hyperplactinemia. Now, this would be something that maybe our um, primary care doctors would treat. I mean, if, if you saw a patient had hyperprolactinemia, I think it would be totally reasonable to provide a dopamine agonist. Bromocryptine is the more common, um, well-established treatment, but there are side effects. So some patients choose used cabergoline. People get pregnant, if this is the only issue with their fertility, often they get pregnant within months of having the prolactin go down. And the prolactin usually goes down within a month. And, you know, obviously, you need to, you know, do a head MRI to make sure that there isn't anything else going on. Um, they may have a small pituitary adenoma, um, and then you can start the, the uh, dopamine agonist. And then once the patient conceives, you can usually stop the dopamine agonist then. 
So I want to talk a little bit about in vitro fertilization because this is a common treatment and um, many patients have questions on it. The first, so IVF takes about a month to do. It kind of mimics a normal cycle. So what you're seeing on these pictures here are uh, two ovaries. So the ovaries on the left side are what ovaries look like before they're stimulated. They have these little small antral follicles. And then after about a week or so of taking FSH and LH, they look like they do on the right. They have larger follicles. So all those black areas are follicles, ovarian follicles, and all those follicles have eggs in them. So again, remember, the body is set up to make only one egg per month. That's what it wants to do. So when we're doing IVF, we use um, different medications to try to get the ovaries to make many eggs at once so we can make the process more efficient. So after about eight to 12 days of using gonadotropins and doing blood work and ultrasound. So patients will come in and have a transvaginal ultrasound and estrogen levels checked about every two or three days for about one to two weeks. Once we have several eggs that are growing, we then do an egg retrieval. An egg retrieval is a transvaginal, almost kind of like a transvaginal ultrasound guided procedure where we put the needle through the vaginal wall into the ovary and we collect the eggs with a little suction. We have a little pump, suction pump that is attached. So we remove the follicular fluid and in the fluid is the egg. That fluid goes to the laboratory and then our embryologists will look at the fluid, retrieve the eggs, and then that same day we get sperm either from a partner or from a donor, and then we put the sperm and the egg together in the laboratory and that causes fertilization of the egg. And then that egg or embryo, so once the egg is fertilized, it's considered an embryo, that then grows for about five days in the laboratory and we'll see a video of that in a second. And then that embryo may be transferred into the body. So that's what that bottom picture is where we use a small catheter to put the embryo into the uterus directly, usually just one. Uh, the embryo may be biopsied and or the embryo may be frozen then. So this first thing, I, so I'm gonna have a couple videos from our lab, which I think they're, they're so neat. So this first video is a video of a procedure called ICSI. This is the procedure that we use for men with male factor infertility. So the egg is in the middle of the screen, and then you see this needle with one sperm. And so we put the sperm directly into the egg. So remember, sperm are supposed to be able to burrow in the wall of the egg on their own. But sometimes if the sperm count is very low, or if the quality of the sperm is poor, it can't get through that wall. So that's what this is. We actually take the sperm, put it directly into the cytoplasm of the egg. Now this next video is also from our IVF lab. This is a video of embryo development. So you could see that the embryo starts at two cells and over the course of about five days, this um, cells divide. They make something called a morula. They cavitate, which is what you're seeing now. And then they expand into something called a blastocyst. So this is a picture of an expanding blastocyst. This blastocyst has two areas, one part that becomes the um, placenta and one part that becomes the fetus. So who are our patients that need IVF or ICSI? For patients who have tubal factor infertility, so fallopian tubes that don't work, this is a great treatment for them. And also for patients who have severe male factor infertility, like the sperm and the egg need to meet in the fallopian tube for fertilization to happen. If the tube can't help that happen or if the sperm can't get there, this is the role for IVF. 
But a lot of our patients end up doing IVF because they have failed other treatments. So this may be people with unexplained infertility, endometriosis, sometimes people have decreased ovarian reserve and we're just trying to get as many eggs as we can to help them conceive. Sometimes our patients with recurrent pregnancy loss will do IVF if they want to do genetic testing of the embryos to make sure that they have a genetically normal pregnancy. As we'll talk about, we do some genetic testing for couples who may have a genetic mutation they don't want to pass on to their children. And then a newer, you know, a newer role for us is doing fertility preservation, so either freezing eggs or embryos for couples or for patients. Um, there, you know, I wanted to add a little bit about what's you know, new and what's happening in the world of IVF and assisted reproductive technology. So how things have changed. So IVF's been around about 40 years or so, and things like in all medicine, things have changed over time. So we have blastocyst culture, which means that we're growing more embryos out to day five, which allows us to transfer less embryos. We're getting much better at decreasing ovarian hyperstimulation. That's OHSS. We're doing genetic testing, which we'll talk about. This um, graph that we're showing here shows us that we're transferring less embryos and we're having less twins and triplets. So the purple line is singletons. So we're doing so much better at having just one baby be born at a time from IVF. We're doing freeze-all cycles. We're freezing more embryos to help patients reduce their risk of hyperstimulation. And we're doing egg freezing for a lot of our patients now as well. I do wanna talk about pre-implantation genetic testing. This will be kind of like the last thing we talk about. But this is an important thing that a lot of patients are doing now. Pre-implantation genetic testing means that we create the embryo and then we test it before it gets used and put into the body. And the, there's three different types of genetic testing. One is to look to see if the embryo has the right number of chromosomes. That's called PGTA. That's looking for aneuploidy. So examples of aneuploidy would be trisomy 21 or Down syndrome or trisomy 18. For our patients who they and their partner carry a recessive disease, or even if they carry a um, X-linked or dominant disease, they may consider doing PGTM. So in this way, we can create embryos and test them and find out if those embryos carry the disease or if they're affected by the disease. And then for our patients who have a balanced translocation, that's called PGTSR. So the process is the same. We're always making embryos and testing them, but the actual test would be different. So this is a picture of an embryo having cells removed for pre-implantation genetic testing. So the embryo is off to the left side, and these are the cells from the trophectoderm, so from the part of the embryo that be part of the embryo that will become the placenta. So those cells are taken. Now those cells should have the same genetic material in all of the cells in the embryo. So these cells, even though they're from the placenta, should still be representative of what the embryo and the fetus would be. And those cells then get taken sent to a lab for analysis and that embryo would get frozen. So indications for PGT would be um, patients who have an increased risk of having a child with a genetic, her heritable genetic condition. For patients who are trying to avoid a sex-linked condition, we may do this selectively to try to help the patients have females. Every once in a while we will do this if a couple needs to have a child that's an HLA match for a sibling who needs um, stem cell therapy. We can do this, I have you know, I've done this many times for patients who have balanced translocations and are having miscarriages because of that. And then some patients who just want to have a single embryo being transferred, um, this may help us increase their chances of having a child if we know that the embryo is euploid. 
So in summary, the initiation of the infertility evaluation is based on age and history. History is very important in helping us understand the tests we need to do and helping the, help the patient get an idea of what their prognosis may be. About 20% or so will have normal testing and may be diagnosed with unexplained infertility. And then the treatment really is based on trying to correct any issues or bypass a medical issue. And with where we are currently with infertility treatment, most patients ultimately will end up having the family that they want to have. Thank you so much, Brooke. That was super helpful because I, I know at least in my training, I did not receive very much on infertility. So it was wonderful to kind of hear the whole overview and the most common treatments that patients are undergoing because it, it truly is such a common condition that um, my patients tell me about all the time in primary yeah. care. So thank you so much. Now, um, I, I know you mentioned for older women, like 40 and above, we should not wait to do... Um, uh, evaluations for infertility. So in those situations, do you recommend that they be referred even before, kind of as, as part of preconception counseling or as soon as they have any issues with fertility? I think it's important to help make sure that they understand that it never hurts to come and talk with somebody, even if it's making sure we get the testing done, making sure we're doing an ultrasound to make sure there's not fibroids or any problems. Um, they can, even if we don't start treatment, we may not start treatment right away, uh -huh. but let's at least make sure that we are doing everything right and we don't have any issues. Um, I think, I mean, having that patient be seen as soon as possible is probably a good idea. Okay. Now, um, tell me a little bit about some side effects, especially as a primary care doctor, that I should be looking out for for any woman undergoing fertility treatments. Um, patients may complain of things like with the oral medications, hot flashes and changes in mood. Um, IVF actually doesn't have many side effects. Um, they, I think they're kind of stressed out because of the whole process, but uh -huh. they actually tolerate it quite well. I think the most important role with a primary care doctor is in this preconception phase. Like I really lean on my primary care doctors to help me with things like you know, obesity medications, anticoagulation, blood pressure management, like these are all mm -hmm. the things that, like, mental health medications, these are all the things that we need to work together on, making sure that the patient's on appropriate medications, and sometimes not being taken off of medications mm -hmm. um, before they conceive. Okay, um, now tell me a little bit about costs, because I hear fertility treatments can be very costly. Um, is, is fertility treatment something that's frequently covered by insurance or, um, you know, what, what are some of the costs that people might be looking at? So it's important for patients to understand that, in, so in the state of Ohio, most patients, there's a mandate that most patients should have their infertility consultation and testing covered by insurance. Uh -huh. So they should be reassured by that. The treatment is often not covered. About 30% of our patients or so have infertility treatment coverage in Ohio. Um, so that can be an issue for patients who need more expensive treatments like in vitro fertilization. But you know, most of our patients are doing things like oral medications, which might be $30, and insemination, which might be hundreds of dollars. Like We really try to make it cost-effective for patients. I would never want that to be a reason to, for them to be scared away or to not even seek consultation. Uh-huh. Okay. So there, there, um, what about, you know, uh, people who are on government insurance? Are there options for those people as well? No, the, the government insurance, they, I think they don't even cover the infertility testing. Mm. Okay. So sometimes we'll try to like, 
you know, either work with their primary care doctor or try to like see if there's any other testing we can do. Like if they need, like, you know, if I have a patient who has elevated prolactin, like that can be fixed, even though it may Uh be causing infertility, but still a medical issue. So sometimes we can try to like see if we can fix it within the context of some other health issue. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Now tell me a little bit about fertility preservation. For example, if we're doing some preconception counseling for um, a woman who has not yet had children Mm -hmm. but wants to in the future, is there, for example, an age that I should be referring them for fertility preservation um, so that they're, uh, as they get older, they're not, um, or they're, they're put setting themselves up for the best chance at fertility. Yeah, again, it never hurts to have them come for the consultation and we can always discuss things, even if they put it off a year. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the studies suggest that things like egg freezing should be done probably in the early to mid 30s. You don't really wanna do it before then because the patient, you know, at 28 might still meet somebody, Mm -hmm. but you don't wanna wait until they're 40 because then those eggs are lesser quality. So. If somebody is really sure, like if they're sitting there and they're 33 years old and they don't have a partner and they don't want a parent on their own, that would be a great time to have them come in and talk about egg freezing and see if that's right for them. Uh-huh. And uh, what about men? Is there an age for them that they should be thinking about? <laughs> oh, that's so much a more difficult question. They, men usually don't do fertility preservation unless they have a medical issue. Like, so for example, if a man's going to um, undergo cancer treatment or mm-hmm. something, that they would freeze sperm. Um, we're still trying to understand the impact of age on obstetric outcomes and um, at different ages in men. Uh-huh. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point. Brooke? So I think it's just really important that your patients know it never hurts to come and get information. I would never, you know, infertility is a very difficult subject to discuss, and they're often scared. They're scared about the cost. They're scared about being told that they're never going to have the family that they want. They need to be reassure, reassured that most of our patients are successful and most of the treatments are manageable in terms of the medication and the cost and everything. So they should always come and at least get the information. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit and ABIM MOC points for watching or listening by logging onto our website and taking the post-test. It has been a pleasure bringing you this season's topics, and I hope you will join us again in the fall as we launch the new season of webcasts. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in, and farewell until next time.